The role of the security team is to help organize, train, and equip so that the developers have the right processes, the right training. You know, they know what a security bug looks like and why you don't want to have one, and the right equipment, the right tools to tell them when they need to do something differently and what to do about it. Welcome to the Seattle Exchange Podcast, where we talk about what's working, what's not, and what's next. I'm Eating Porter DeLeon. In this episode, I speak with Karen Wurzel, VMware Cyber Strategist, and Steve Lipner, Executive Director of SafeCode and co-developer of the original Microsoft Secure Development Lifecycle Model. They talk about the new scale of DevSecOps, secure code, and how to safely adopt new technologies. Karen also describes how modern operating environments differ from older ones and the concerns she has with quickening development life cycles. Steve explains the work of his nonprofit, SafeCode, and the importance of combining security with development cycles. They also discuss the future of cloud infrastructure and get into the benefits and possible pitfalls of ChatGPT as it relates to the acceleration of security threats. Steve, I'm so glad that you were able to join today. And with us as well, which is great, we also have Karen Wartzel. It was great that we kind of brought everyone together here because you two haven't actually spoken in a little while, have you? It's been, how long has it been since you guys have talked? Oh gosh, I kind of hate to admit like how many years it's been, but I think I left Microsoft in 2005 and maybe I've run into you at RSA a couple of times since then. That would have been my guess that, we've, that I've run into you at RSA a, a few times, but it has been a while. Oh, it's, it sounds crazy because I know, Steve, just, you know, kind of a backstory to Karen and I have been wanting to do this topic for a long time and we're going through different people. And finally, she's like, you know what? I have the perfect person. We have to talk to Steve Libner. And I said, great, let's do it. So here we are. It's, it's fantastic that Karen, you thought of Steve and that now you're talking to him, even though it's been so long. I'm grateful for Steve saying yes. <laughs> it's very, very cool to fantastic. be reconnected. Fantastic. So I wanted to, to just to get into it too, because I know there's, there's, been an emerging conversation, actually. This is not a new conversation, which is how do you integrate a lot of these different elements of the software supply chain of operations, of developers and security, even though now there's a term that's DevSecOps, which is kind of the overarching story art that we're talking about today. I wanted to just level set a little bit. So to talk about Steve, maybe we could start with you. This is not a this is not a new conversation. Do you feel like that just having DevSecOps as a term, is that an inflection point? Is that a negative? Is it kind of something now this new term that means like everything to everyone? It's a little bit of a new term that means everything to everybody. As you say, when I was at Microsoft, we were largely focused on secure development, on building code that was secure. And then as the cloud and online services emerged as a more and more major part of the business, we evolved naturally to what's now called a DevSecOps discipline, you know, where the developers were were also responsible for operating the service. And to the extent that they could, they did the system management system operations with code rather than people pushing buttons or clicking on mouse, what have you. But because we had sort of integrated the secure development piece into what people were expected to do before that transition, you know, how do we do this and still achieve this agility that we need for uh, DevSecOps? At another point, how you know, we're going to do this and we're going to keep the secure development because we know why that's important. And so it was both a challenge to make that transition work, but also something that everybody knew they had to do. 
No, that makes sense. And that fascinates me that what you talked about is, well, how do you keep that agility? Because the business still has to be able to get products and services quickly to market. But at the same time, there has to be a good user experience and you have to have security and you have to have compliance. Those are absolutely critical. And maybe, Karen, you can give me a sense of when you use this new term, how do you think people and specifically technology leaders should think about it when they hear the term DevSecOps so they don't go off you know, the rails too much? When someone comes and says DevSecOps, what's a, a great way from a business standpoint and a real security and development standpoint that they, they could leverage that term and use it in a way without kind of going in 15 different directions? Here's how I think about it from an IT perspective, is that you have dev, like you've got to create new stuff and you've got to get things out the door. You've got to maintain it. And then you've got operations, which is where everything is running in production. And you've got this interface where stuff comes down the pipeline and either it's going to be released as production software, like a Microsoft production software or a VMware production software, or it's an internal application that a company is developing for its own use. You've got all of this development cycle. And it used to be that we did a whole lot of development and then we had a big block point and then we pushed it into production. And so development and operations, DevOps, kind of had two camps. I think that's shifted. And this is one of the things I'd really love to hear more from Steve about. But what I am hearing as I talk more and more to different groups is the cycle between the development and pushing it into production has accelerated to the point where it's not this big block point that people work on for months and then push it out the door. It's going in in a cycle of days, if not hours to get new functionality, new features, new stuff out there constantly. And so the cycle has revved up tremendously and it's changed the way we we work. So DevSecOps basically means that you've got this development cycle and then you've got the operations of it on an ongoing basis. What's really, really different, the type of code we're writing has changed the operating environment that we're pushing it into has changed. And the cycle, the time cycle has really changed. It's a concern, to be honest. It's a benefit, but it's also something that worries people. Does that sound right to you, Steve? The, yeah, the, it does. The other thing that I think is important about DevSecOps, the developers are developing and then they meet a set of requirements and they push to production. And so you don't have a separate operations group. Now, the developers are done. We've tested it. It's ready. Now we throw it over the wall to ops. Now they see if they can load it onto production servers. Maybe they do a test environment before it goes live. No more of that. I mean, I'm sure that happens in some cases. But if it takes a, a half million lines of code, you're not going to do that overnight. But, you know, if it's a small feature, if it's an incremental change, if it's changing the way something works or responds or a, a piece of user interface or something, you may be able to start from a concept or an idea and build some code, demonstrate it, and then make it live that afternoon. There are a couple of pieces of security associated with that. Part of them is that the development has to be secure, just like it would if you were doing a Windows release on a three-year cycle. And then the other part 
is that you have to sustain the operational security through that change. So who's authorized to make that push to the live site? How do you know that that change is authorized? How do you roll back if there's a problem? And so, you know, that code has to preserve the security of the operational enterprise. So Steve and Karen, you both touched on something that was really, really critical, I think, which is the development cycle is accelerating. And one of the parts of the conversation around DevSecOps is how are organizations scaling that effort of securing with code, of rapid deployment, but at the same time, how are they dealing with some of the risks involved in moving so quickly? What are you seeing as some of the ways that this new DevSecOps paradigm is addressing the scalability of that acceleration of deployment while maintaining security? I think a big component to the extent that you're writing code, there are tools and tests that you build into your development cycle. And the SDL model that we created you know, at Microsoft starting in 2004 really made the testing and creation of secure code responsibility of the development group, not some after the fact team. That helped. And now if you're doing deployment four hours after you started writing on a, a little project, those tools and tests and scans and, and assurance have to be part of that tool suite and development process that you run, and they have to work in that in that four hours. That's a change. It can be less of a change than you'd expect. But if you're starting from a model, well, we're going to build our code, and then we're going to throw it over the wall, and somebody else is going to decide whether it's secure. No, no. There's no way to do the over the fence. It has to be embedded in the process, as you described, Steve. I think one of the things that I hear from security teams is the concern that they don't have the bases covered with telling dev or having those processes embedded with the dev team. Well, let me ask you this question. Does it seem to you like there's still a lot of old mindset that people are trying to do modern apps or rapid DevOps using the older mindset and running into problems? Do you see that? Most of the people that I hang out with these days are members of SafeCode, this nonprofit that I work for part-time. The SafeCode members have all committed to integrating security into their development lifecycle. That's the right start to enable them to do DevOps or, or whatever, do it in an effective and responsive way. I've talked to some organizations that they want to have a secure development process, but what that means is that they want to have the security team run the tools and then give the bugs back to the uh, developers to fix. That's just a lose. You know, it not only doesn't work for DevSecOps or Agile, it just doesn't work. Well, that's kind of, I guess, what I was alluding to is that in the old mindset, I always like to pass an audit, right? So in the old days, I'm dating myself, but when we do a, de <laughs> a dev cycle, right, and we might be working on something for some time and we'd have a block point and we'd have a quality control check and we'd have maybe a security review and We'd have all of these steps that we went through and all these boxes that we would check and artifacts that we would make to prove to the auditors that these things have been done. When I talk about older mindset, there's still this idea that somehow that's what we're going to have to do in some way in this new DevOps kind of cycle. And, and I agree with you, like there's no way it scales and no way it works. But I, I do feel like there's 
people I talk to who probably are not a part of Safe Code yet. Maybe that's the first thing we should tell them is like, you got to join Safe Code and hang out there. But there's this consternation. I don't know how to make this happen when we've got a dev cycle that's so rapid. So they're not adjusting, maybe in all cases. If you want a thousand person security team, then the way to do that is to do all the audits and all the testing and all the security reviews and all the compliance after the fact. If you want secure software out there this afternoon, then the responsibility for building secure software has to be with the developers. So then what's the role of the security team? The role of the security team is to you know, help organize, train, and equip so that the developers have the right processes, the right training. They know what a security bug looks like and why you don't want to have one. And the right equipment, the right tools to tell them when they need to do something differently and what to do about it. Then the other thing, I mean, the historic audit or the historic compliance model is to review artifacts. If I have to produce artifacts for the auditors, then there are two things wrong with that. One of them, it takes me time. And the other is that it's pretty much guaranteed to fool the auditors. What I produce is at a distance from what's actually happening. And that distance is too often fatal. The artifacts that matter are the code and the tool outputs, the bugs in the workflow system, and the threat models. Those are produced as side effects of developing And most of them can be validated very quickly with automation. I do a query on the bug tracking system, and I know whether you fixed your uh, static analysis bugs. I know whether you've set all the ACLs right. The secure development model is not only more effective, but it's probably better for, for Agile than the sort of old compliance model. Yeah. Well, to your point, the code is the artifact, and it's the automated tools that help us be able to keep up with that pace. I love that the conversation is going into what kind of models are need to be applied in order to be able to bring the different teams together and be able to produce the secure code in the way that it needs to be and have developers taking responsibility rather than people clicking on interfaces for security. And security people also needing to understand, like you said, Steve, what's a bug and why is it bad to have one? What are all these different things that are going to be issues that are actually developer things in a way that they can work together better? And so I think it begs the question when a technology leader is trying to move towards a model that you you two are talking about, what are some of the ways in which they can better facilitate communication between these different teams, organizing these different teams so that you can apply this model rather than trying to apply a model on top of something that's just going to behave the way that it did before because everyone's ingrained in the way their teams are organized, the way that their metrics are measured. How does that shift start? If you're a technology leader, how do you start to move the team in that direction? Like what's the first step so that it all doesn't you know fall apart when you try and do it? Actually, starting with the, the security push, the Windows security push at Microsoft. When we started that, there was no real discipline of secure development. There were some pretty nascent static analysis tools. That must have been extremely difficult. No discipline around secure software development. Right. And so we we made it up. The Windows security push, we started it out of the Windows security feature development team in the core operating system division. From day one, It was developer-driven trying to figure out how to build and deliver secure code. What would we do that seems like it would work to find and eliminate vulnerabilities? And what would we do that developers could actually do? We had some 
great ideas. We had some misses. We had some things that we did and then stopped doing. But the mindset was always developer-driven or developer audience. We built up the team from people with development experience, and that was pretty instrumental in our being able to figure out what the right things to do were, and also in our having the credibility to get the developers to actually listen to us. I remember there was some pushback. <laughs> I was about to ask. I was okay, say, just jumped I, in that I, I do I remember that there was some pushback <laughs> at one point, and it took a production release delay. This code is not shipping until we fix this. Is that? Am I remembering that right? Well, you know, after we had the security development lifecycle, the Windows security push and and the other big product security pushes went pretty well. The more experience a product team had had with bad vulnerability reports and bad incidents, the more open it was to figuring out what are we going to do about this. Well, and there was a big tone at the oh, top. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this was coming down from the top. You know, this was the Gates memo, right. famous Gates memo. And then and subsequent to that, I mean, uh, is it Jim Alchin and Balmer? I mean, everybody was on pretty on board with that, if I remember right. Howard Schmidt and Craig Mundy worked a lot over a period of about a year to get the company to the point where Bill was convinced and agreed to sign off on the trustworthy computing commitment. And then when we went to, you know, a permanent forever commitment to the security development lifecycle, Balmer was the guy who signed off on that. But I, I remember when we made the SDL mandatory floated out to a lot more teams than had been involved with security pushes. And their code was sort of a, a disaster. At that time, we had what we call the final security review, just sort of a combination of, of pen test and rerun the tools. And, you know, everything turned up yellow or red. You know, we didn't just give them back the bugs that we found and say, fix these. We said, go back and do the process like it says in the document and come back to us and ask us to ship when you've done that. And they did. So that was a whole sale like establishment of, of a, a completely new discipline. I mean, but that it takes that beachhead yeah. in order yeah. to get everybody's attention and say, oh yeah, this is not kind of like lip service. This is for real. Yeah. And this was in the days after Code Red and the days after Nimda and the days after Slammer. So people understood what bad things could happen. But it's also a motivator to the developers. And so, you know, that actually made the job easier. I want to kind of set this in context because the era that we're talking about and that SDL and development of the trustworthy computing and the SDL that we lived through, I didn't spend as much time there as you did, but that was a different era. Windows security was... A, a real huge problem. And Microsoft is like, we have to do something about this, thanks to Howard and Mike and you and others. And so that was a different time. And what we have now is, I, I guess the closest thing I can think of to some of the security problems we were facing was if you had Log4j over and over and over and over again, it would be that kind of a to put it in a modern context, it'd be that kind of a situation. And so it's at some point you go, we cannot afford to keep being the one who keeps showing up in the news with this kind of bad press. Today, 
people are worried about a lot of things, but we've learned so much, right? We've, we've learned a lot. I guess what I'm trying to explore here is now that we're moving to the cloud, we've already got software-defined infrastructure. So we've got dev involved there. We've got traditional style applications sitting on cloud infrastructure. And now we have modern apps sitting on cloud infrastructure. I think I saw a statistic recently that API traffic was 50% of the traffic on the internet. That's telling. It's really telling. So that gives you some idea like of the scale of what's happening that people are like literally taking all these little fragments of code and hanging everything together with APIs. It's like, this is a whole new rodeo. And I'm wondering if we're going to see another shift happen, another like a big aha moment of going, oh my gosh, we should have been doing this differently. Is there something like that out there? Or do you think we've got it all, the safe code have it all figured out? The challenge is that it's it's too easy to learn to program without learning to program securely. And if you get a degree in computer science, you know about algorithms, which means you know about time and, and how long it takes to compute something. And you know about data structures, which means you know, know about space and you know how to access data. And you know, security is part of of learning to program like, you know, like data structures, like algorithms. Very few computer science departments do it that way. There's either no computer science class or there's an elective that teaches you about encryption and, and firewalls or something. It's it's still pretty old school. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's that's interesting to, to hear is that that you you haven't integrated some of the new things that are already out in the industry. Why that hasn't floated back into the academics and in training and making sure the next generation of coders, you would assume, would be doing it more securely, but is maybe that's just not the case. I'm going to offer an opinion, and I'd be really interested in the feedback from people who are listening, what they think about this and what Steve thinks about this. But I think the truth of it is that in the technology world where we're surrounded by new technology and we're used to that cycle of new technology evolution and adopting it like early adopters, we can get kind of out over the skis when it comes to the rest of the world. You know, academia, it takes time to like build the new courses, build the new curriculum, get that all approved and get everything all pulled together, right? They can't just turn on a dime and say, oh, it's a new world and we're going to just change now. And the same is true with legacy infrastructures in these companies where they're making incremental changes towards modernization. But as we've seen in the news in recent events, technical debt is our biggest risk, my opinion. And so we look at it and we go, oh, how come you're not doing this yet? It's not that easy. It's like a gigantic boat anchor and chain that has to get pulled along with this before they can start to navigate a new course. And I think it's going to slow people down quite a bit. I'm actually enamored with this idea of adopting new technology, Karen. And and Steve, I'd like both to talk about it. I'm going to throw a little, just a little bit of a curveball in here because it's it's something that I think is really incredibly right now. It's emerging and people are talking about it and that's GPT-3. 
and AI writing code and AI looking at code and debugging code, but then AI looking at code and finding exploits for code. And you're typing into a chatbot and it's actually finding legitimate exploits in code, whether it's on the Ethereum network or whether it's in a database. It's mind blowing how and how fast this curve is going to go now and how there's so, so many different teams and so many different models that are not going to be able to keep up with it. I would love to hear sort of just your thoughts. It's new and it's and it's fascinating, but also it's kind of scary. What are the some of the sort of some of the risks? I mean, serious risks or some of the concerns that, that you have with with now AI sort of accelerating this every all the different risks you're talking about. If I train my AI to write code on a training set that's all been developed without any attention to security, then guess what it's going to do? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Exactly. We've been playing around with it quite a bit. In fact, I wrote a blog post, which should be going out here pretty soon. And chat GPT was just hugely helpful. It's fabulous. Yeah, <laughs> so that was amazing. But the other thing we've been playing around with here on the exploits, first of all, it's excellent at pen testing. Mm -hmm. It finds things and it does it really quickly. That's pretty cool. So using it to do code reviews, if you've trained it properly and you have confidence in that, and maybe that's a process, you could use that to help automate part of the code review process. The other thing that we saw to kind of assuage the fears, I think ChatGPT seems to have some ethics. And so we tried to get it to write exploit code and it refused. Mm. Because you weren't in so, kernel mode. If you were in kernel mode, Karen, you could pretty much make it do whatever you wanted to do. <laughs> right, that might, well, well the, you know, it raises a bunch of, questions, which are the, probably the subject for a whole nother podcast, oh, yeah. Absolutely. right? Absolutely. We've got, we got to bring, we got to come back yeah. and talk about this some more for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but I see Steve, you have a big smile on your face for those who aren't, you know, who are, who are just listening. But, of course, uh, Steve's got this huge smile on his face. <laughs> well, I'm just, I'm just thinking about chat GPT using, doing penetration tests. I mean, I don't know a lot about, about what the experience with it has been, but well, you're not going to get perfection that way. You're not going to per get perfection any other way either. That use of AI can either be a really good thing or a really bad thing. <laughs> it can go both ways. Well, that's like almost every invention, right? In security. And yeah, one of my favorite quotes is that the person who invented the car invented the car crash. Right. Because there wasn't a car crash before mm -hmm. the car was invented. They're inventing the AI exploit. They're inventing the AI meltdown. Whatever comes of it, they've just invented. Maybe they don't know what they've invented it yet. Are we going to end up in a certain point where you've got security teams and developer teams training AI models where an AI produces code and then sips it to another AI who reviews the code and then sends the bugs back and then the AI rewrites it and that that cycle you know further accelerates you know that the development life cycle that we're doing right now or do you feel like there's just going to be way more human involvement than that you're kind of describing open source yeah <laughs> open, open source I mean there's a very depressing report out of the Harvard Business School from end of 2020, where they did a survey, a sample survey of, of open source developers about security. They got a response back that people just couldn't be bothered with security. It was a mind-numbing bureaucratic task. That was sort of the takeaway from the report and the government involved trying to get people, uh, open source developers, open source projects committed to, to doing, doing their work securely. I think that's super important. You're building on this base that I was talking about, you know, developers who were never exposed to uh, the notion that their code had to be secure when they learned to program. How you do that is problematic. 
Karen brought up open source in the context of the chat GPT. I mean, be interesting to to take chat GPT or one of the automatic coding tools and hook it up in a feedback loop with one of the static analysis tools or one of the, the fuzzers. Mm, interesting. Right, yeah, right, and see what happens. Write code, <laughs> you know, run the static analysis tool on it and see if the tool learns to write secure code over time. I imagine someone's doing that right now at this moment. I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> I, I would say, I, I would offer that I think people are never going to be out of the loop. Because the truth of it is, is that if I have, whether it's a developer or whether it's ChatGPT or whatever other AI is generating code snippets, and this is all being entered into a code base, and then the next person assumes that it's been reviewed and vetted and uses it, and the next mm-hmm. person uses mm-hmm. it, and we get this multiplication mm-hmm. of tiny errors. Mm-hmm. Pretty soon you have a completely corrupted code base. If I were a bad guy, that's what I would do. It's not stack-based buffer overruns that, that are worrying people now, but design errors where you know you don't just run a tool and find the design errors. That's where the training becomes important. Maybe the AI can help with that too. <laughs> like I think we both said, we could have done a whole episode just just on this piece alone. But I love the fact that you you just touched on a little bit because I thought it, especially now, I think it's really relevant when you're looking at, especially building a whole new, whether it's an SDL or whether it's a DevSecOps practice, this is now really just destabilizing the whole idea of what it is to write code and review code and what the tools of those who are trying to find exploits, what those tools are and how easy they are to use. So with that, I just, I kind of wanted to just give the listeners a chance to, Steve, where, where can people find out more about safe code? Where can they find out more about you? I tweet very occasionally and my Twitter handle is just Lipner, L-I-P-N-E-R. My personal website is stevelipner.org. The SafeCode website is safecode, S-A-F-E-C-O-D-E dot org. There's free guidance. There are training courses, a lot of resources for organizations that are or individuals that are trying to learn about secure development. No, it's fascinating too. It's been great, Steve. Karen, where where can people find out more about you? Uh, LinkedIn. I love it when people connect with me on LinkedIn, and uh, I'm under Karen Warstel. Fabulous. Well, Steve, Karen, I think it's a phenomenal, fascinating conversation. I think it could have gone a million different directions and I, I wish we could talk more, but I think we're going to have to wrap it up here. I really appreciate both of you joining the CIO Exchange podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. This has been really fun. This was fun. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to this latest episode. Please consider subscribing to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more insights from technology leaders, as well as global research on key topics, visit vmware.com slash CIO.